I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. In an experiment. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, the emergence of mega studies in behavioural science. And what the launch of the James Webb Telescope could do for astronomy. I'm Sharmini Bandel. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. There are different methods of encouraging people to do things, and figuring out which method is the most effective has important policy implications. A key question in behavioural science is how do you compare these methods to find the best one? This week, Nick Petrich-Howe has been finding out about a unique experimental approach. The behavioural sciences are all about trying to understand how and why people do things. In recent years, this field has caught the attention of governments and policymakers who would like to encourage people to do certain things, like pay their taxes or go to the gym. Now, there have been many insights from behavioural science on such interventions, but to really drill down into what might work for whom, there need to be studies specifically focusing on a particular idea and comparing it to a baseline. A placebo. Essentially a randomised controlled trial, like you might find for a drug, but instead for something like a phone notification to remind you to pay your taxes. Again, such studies have yielded many insights, but they still have problems. For example, often these studies have been done in different places with different populations, so it makes it really hard to compare them to one another. This week in Nature, though, researchers have come up with a new method that can tackle some of these issues. Katie Milkman is one of the authors, and I called her up to find out more. So, okay, I'm recording all this on my end. I will send you a WAV file afterwards if that works, and I'm excited. And Do I sound okay to you? Like, is this close enough? Yeah, you know, you sound like you're coming in really well. Uh, Can you hear me okay? Yes, I hear you very clearly. Great. That's why I have the microphone right here. (laughs) 
So a good place to start, you've got a paper that's just come out in Nature. And in this paper, you come up with an experimental approach called the Mega Study. I feel like I need to say that in sort of like an 80s narrator, like film voice. Uh, but yeah, you come up with this <laughs> With your megaphone. With my megaphone. <laughs> you come up with this new experimental approach, the Mega Study. So what is it and how does it tackle some of these issues? Yeah, so the Mega Study, it is sort of a ridiculous name, but... But we like it. We're having fun with it. The idea is that instead of doing science sort of the old-fashioned way, testing one hypothesis at a time in isolation with a single population, what if we actually tested dozens of hypotheses? Or at least, you know, more than 10. (laughs) More than one. All at once in one massive randomized controlled trial. If you could test all sorts of different ideas at the same time in the same population with the same outcome measure. Well, now suddenly you have huge reduction in the individual costs of those studies and you have comparability. Now you can actually say, oh, look, this is more cost effective than that. And you can also get people from different disciplines to have some more cross-pollination because normally, you know, an economist has an idea and a psychologist has an idea and a sociologist has an idea and they do their own independent tests. If you pool them and have one massive randomized controlled trial in which each of them gets to design their little study, but it launches at the same time, well, now they're having some kind of dialogue because they're going to see each other's results. They're going to actually learn from each other about what ideas they had in a way that they might not have otherwise. So this is testing a whole bunch of hypotheses at the same time. So is this with the same population, the same people, and all the parameters the same apart from the one thing you're trying to test? That's exactly right. And I'll get a little less abstract. So the paper, it talks about the idea of the mega study, but it also presents one to say like, and this is what one looks like. And the mega study that we ran was in partnership with a large national fitness chain in the United States, and it was to encourage their members to exercise more regularly. And so we actually had 30 different scientists involved in in different teams. And each little team of scientists came up with a hypothesis and a study design, you know, one, two, three, sometimes different experimental conditions that they were designing to test their hypothesis. And then we pooled all of those different, I'll call them sub-studies, into a, a mega study, which had a total of 54 different experimental conditions. Of all the conditions Katie and her team tried, 45% were more successful than the control at encouraging exercise. A lot of them worked. The most effective was giving people a small reward for returning to the gym after a missed session. Which sounds pretty good to me. But Katie also wanted to make sure that the results of the mega study were telling them something beyond what was already known from conventional studies. After all, if we already know a good way to motivate people to go to the gym, then why embark on such a massive enterprise? And so she built a sort of quality control into the study. We also had built sort of a best practice experimental group that took all the things we knew from past scientific research on this topic and put them in. So that was a tougher bar to beat. And actually only, I think, 9% did. So you may not have found the way to motivate everyone to do exercise, but to show the principle of the mega study, do you think this was a success? Oh, absolutely. It was such an exciting new way of doing science for me and all of my collaborators. And I think we all are really excited about the potential of this new way of doing science. 
Katie is excited, but it's her baby, so perhaps this is unsurprising. So to get an outside take, I also spoke to Heather Royer. I'm Heather Royer, and I'm a full professor in the economics department at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Heather studies health economics and has written a summary of Katie's paper as a News & Views article. I, I think it's an exciting method. One of the things I do worry is that we need to make it such that we encourage a diversity of opinions. And so trying to get people who are less well connected in the research community to participate in the start of these mega studies, I think is a really important thing to consider. And do you see yourself doing any such study in the near future? Uh, I'm, I'm very intimidated <laughs> by the whole enterprise. I mean, the, the fact, the studies that I've done involved a thousand participants. This one has 60,000 participants, but it's very exciting. I think it would be cool to be able to test different types of interventions that I've thought might work but have been hesitant to do so and yeah that's something you touched on a little bit in your news and views is could this be a way to test interventions that perhaps don't seem particularly likely at least from the outset to be very effective yeah i think that's one of the really exciting things about the mega study is that you could test things in doing your work you've thought that would be effective but have been hesitant to do so because you have limited number of interventions that you can do in one RCT and here to some extent an unlimited number of interventions you can do. Heather sees mega studies as a useful tool to narrow down a wide range of interventions and select the best candidates for more in-depth study. However, mega studies are huge and not the easiest or cheapest studies to organize. I think that's one of the biggest limitations of the mega study is that it is really expensive. I am really bullish on mega studies being used more by policymakers and governments and scientists who are trying to really contribute to pressing problems. This is just another approach we can take. And I think the pandemic gave us a particularly nice example of when it might be really valuable to roll out a mega study when you have a pressing policy question. The need for insights is large enough that you're ready to fund it at a level that would make a mega study possible. We've actually done some work building on this idea to try to figure out can we use mega studies to accelerate science on encouraging vaccination? And we've had a lot of big successes there. And that would never have been possible if we hadn't started out with this project and sort of built the idea of a mega study. We don't have time to wait for scientists to, you know, do their own thing for a decade or two and come back with what they think is a good answer, right? We need to accelerate the speed of high quality science to get to the bottom of it. So that's where I see the future of mega studies. That was Katie Milkman from the University of Pennsylvania in the US. You also heard from Heather Royer from the University of California, Santa Barbara, also in the US. For more on mega studies, check out the show notes for a link to Katie's paper and a News and Views article written by Heather. Coming up, we'll be hearing about the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope and what it could mean for astronomers. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read by Dan Fox. The gigantic Hearst's Eagle 
ruled the skies above New Zealand until it went extinct several centuries ago. Weighing in at as much as 15 kilograms, it was the largest eagle ever known. But was this enormous bird a fearsome hunter, or did it survive by scavenging? To find out, researchers used fossils of the eagle to create computer models of its talons and skull. The team then compared these features to those of various living, hunting and scavenging birds. Hunting birds typically have relatively long talons and tough beaks and skulls. The Haas eagle had talons and a beak like those of modern eagles, but the rest of the skull was more vulture-like. Simulations showed that it would have been good at pulling its head back, a motion commonly made by scavengers tearing tissue from a carcass. But it could also bite. Hard. The researchers think the eagle was capable of hunting and killing prey much larger than itself, which it would then feast on while on the ground, perhaps even by plunging its head into the still warm carcass. Hunt down that research yourself in Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Comets and asteroids have bombarded many planets, including the Earth, but new research suggests that the seven Earth-sized worlds orbiting the star TRAPPIST-1 may have enjoyed a relatively undisturbed existence. A team of researchers simulated what might happen if the planet circling TRAPPIST-1 had been bombarded by space rocks during and after their formation. They found that the planets couldn't have been impacted by anything larger than the Earth's moon without disrupting their fragile orbital relationship. These seven planets are thought to contain water, but their relatively unruffled history raises a new question about how it got there. Space smash-ups are thought to have supplied water to Earth and other planets, but the lack of collisions with the TRAPPIST-1 worlds suggests that their water must have already been there, perhaps in their molten interiors, and was not delivered later by comets or other impactors. This means planets may have many ways to acquire water and other important ingredients needed for life. Read that research in full in Nature Astronomy. Next up, reporter Adam Levy is taking a look at a telescope decades in the making. When you think of space, what images come to mind? Breathtaking nebulae, the complexity of our neighbours in our solar system, or maybe the fiery consumption of gigantic black holes? Whatever you think of, there's a good chance that the photographs you're picturing were taken by one particularly iconic telescope, Hubble. Three decades after its launch, the Hubble Space Telescope is still active, and for many purposes, the best tool astronomers have for observing our universe. Which is precisely why its successor is such a big deal. The James Webb Space Telescope, or simply Webb, aims to vastly build on Hubble's achievements, observing the cosmos like never before. Hopefully. This collaboration between NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency is scheduled to launch later this month, and even if everything goes smoothly, we're still months away from first observations. To find out why Webb is such a big deal, and just how nerve-wracking the launch is, I caught up with space correspondent for Nature, Alex Witsey. She told me just how excited researchers are right now. 
in the run-up to the launch for Webb, I mean, astronomers are super excited and super nervous, I would say. So this telescope is by far the most ambitious and grand thing that NASA has ever tried to put into space. It's like a $10 billion technological marvel. And a lot of things have to go right for it to launch and for it to work properly. I think it's fair to say that astronomers around the world are holding their breath to see if this launches and gets up properly. Now, what actually makes the Webb Telescope's design unique? You can think about it compared to the Hubble Space Telescope. Webb is going to be 100 times more sensitive than Hubble. It's much larger and it's much more complex. So you've got to build a big, complicated thing in space. And all of those things are not easy to do. One of the things that sets Webb apart from Hubble is its focus on longer wavelengths of light, uh, the infrared part of the spectrum. This allows the telescope to see really far away and so really far back in time. What could we actually learn from these observations? Astronomers are going to do a lot of different things with Webb, but sort of the primary thing that got this started in the first place is the notion of pushing closer to observing events that happened after the Big Bang. Astronomers hope to see, and probably will see, some of the first stars that formed after the Big Bang, and then how those stars started to assemble into galaxies soon thereafter. And then how did those galaxies evolve with time? How did it all start? That's the question that Webb can push into that astronomers haven't been able to do before. It'll go deeper back in time than anyone's been able to do. On the smaller scale, though, it feels kind of funny to talk about any of this as small scale, are exoplanets, planets going around other stars other than our own. What does Webb hope to learn about these exoplanets? Webb is going to be great at looking at the atmospheres of these exoplanets. It's going to be able to look for molecules in the atmospheres of these exoplanets. So maybe see things like oxygen, methane, carbon, which we haven't been able to do with instruments before. And if you can detect that kind of stuff in the atmosphere of another planet, you can start to think about what's geology like on those worlds. Is there water on the surface? Could there be life there? So Webb is going to be able to look at these atmospheres of the exoplanets like nobody has before. We've been talking about a lot of what Webb will do or what it hopefully will do. How big a risk is there of of failure here? It's a really risky thing to launch a really complicated space telescope. And just to go back in history, if you read about the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope, they started looking at stars and galaxies and they realized it was out of focus because somebody had ground the mirror improperly and they had to send astronauts up there to install corrective optics to get it working properly. And that was not cool. So Webb has a lot more that could go wrong with it than Hubble. You can be pretty sure that Webb's mirror is going to be in focus because no one's going to make that mistake again. But there are just a lot of complicated things that have to happen. You have to launch, which is always risky because you're on a giant rocket launching into deep space. It has to unfold. It's kind of folds itself up like origami to stick it in the rocket fairing. And if anything sticks while it's unfolding, you're in a lot of trouble because it's going to a point in deep space that astronauts can't visit to fix it if something goes wrong. It takes about a month for hundreds of small steps to be done to get the thing unfolded and operational. But it's a lot. It's a lot. And I suppose this isn't hypothetical, the idea of things going wrong, because the launch has been 
delayed many times. Yeah, there's been a lot of issues during the whole development of the observatory. You know, some astronomers just kind of roll their eyes when they talk about web launching because it's always been so far in the future. So, for instance, when they were building it in the clean room in the aerospace companies, um, a technician used the wrong solvent to clean some valves, and that like messed them up, and they had to fix all that stuff, and all sorts of crazy things have gone wrong. But they've tested, retested, tested again, retested. So the idea is that they've spent so much time and so much money testing everything that, fingers crossed, it'll work when it gets to space. This has been decades in the making. How do you personally feel as someone who's who's been covering the space beat for a long time now that the the day is creeping nearer? Well, you know, I have this folder on my computer that's James Webb Space Telescope, and I have at least three different story folders within that that are all called JWST, James Webb Space Telescope Delay, because it's been delayed so many times and I've written about it so many times. So it's a little strange to actually have like folders now for like launch stories and first science stories. It's like, oh, right, that thing I've been writing about in the hypothetical for so long, like it might actually happen now. But there are people who have observing time on the telescope now who weren't literally were not born when the telescope was first conceived, you could say, uh, which to me just blows my mind. And some of these people will be using it for a field that didn't exist when the telescope was conceived. Like exoplanet science did not exist. It's, it's pretty mind blowing. That was nature reporter Alex Whitsey chatting to Adam Levy. For more on the upcoming launch of the Webb Telescope, be sure to check out a feature written by Alex, and that'll be in the show notes. Finally on the podcast, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of stories that have been highlighted in the nature briefing. And Shamini, you're up first today. What have you got to discuss this time? I've got some cool space science for you today, Ben. I've got a pair of supermassive black holes. They're on the way to a collision. They're the, the closest pair of supermassive black holes to Earth. Uh, and they're just, they're very exciting. Wow. Okay, well, listen, you're excited. I'm excited <laughs> to find out. A couple of questions, though. The closest to Earth, how close are we talking here? And is this something that I should be worried about? <laughs> no, the distances and the timescales here are the ones that you know astronomers get excited by not something that you have any concerns but this is a very exciting discovery this is reported in a new scientist article and um, researchers using the very large telescope in Chile have spotted this pair of black holes so as to how close it is we're talking 89 million light years from earth quite a long way but it is five times closer than the previously known closest pair of supermassive black holes And when I say, you know, they're just about to collide um, in maybe 250 million years. So maybe I shouldn't set an alarm on just yet. (laughs) Um, So close and soon in astronomical terms then, Shamini. But what are researchers expecting to see then when these two black holes collide? Well, so they're not planning on waiting 250 million years for them to collide. But for astronomers, this is kind of it's kind of like a snapshot And, you know, it is relatively close compared to other pairs that we know. So the researchers are quite excited to be able to see them. You know, they describe it as in the act of the merging process. So a snapshot that they don't actually get to to observe very often. And we've covered black holes on the podcast before. And of course, they are, in many cases, quite difficult to spot because obviously you can't see them, right? (laughs) Um, So how were these ones seen then as, as they sort of inch closer together? Well, these ones are actually apparently even harder to spot than usual. So some black holes actually give off light as matter sort of goes into them. And apparently that's the usual method for 
detecting black holes. These black holes have been described as silent um, and they've actually, despite being relatively close, no one's spotted them before, but they were able to look at the movements of nearby stars and basically figure out that they were there. And the other interesting thing about this sort of particular discovery is that in this pair, there's one big one. And for an idea of scale, the big one is 154 million times more massive than our sun. And it's in the centre of this particular galaxy. But the other one is just like a little bit to the side of it, just sort of off to the side in this galaxy. Galaxy adjacent. (laughs) Well, still in the galaxy, but it's like not at the centre. And they reckon that it was probably like part of a smaller galaxy that then got sort of swallowed up by the bigger galaxy. And one thing that the researchers point out is that, of course, you know, when you're looking for black holes, the centre of galaxies is a good place to look for them. But if you kind of account for all these sort of off-centre secondary black holes in galaxies, that could actually increase the number of known supermassive black holes in the universe by as much as 30%. So by discovering this coming together then, it increases maybe the chances of seeing other such phenomena elsewhere in the universe? Yep, finding this pair could be the start of a huge increase in the number of supermassive black holes that we know are out there in the universe. And hopefully on future briefings, I shall be excitedly telling you about all the new supermassive black holes that have been discovered. Well, Shamley, why don't I step up now? And your story, you said there, a telescope in Chile was very much central to finding this pair. Well, let's stick in Chile for my story. And this was reported in the New York Times, and it's from a paper that was published in Nature. And it's about a new dinosaur that's been discovered. Yay, I love dinosaurs. We've got black holes and dinosaurs. This is, this is an excellent episode. Is it one of my favourite kinds of dinosaurs? Like, cool, raptor-like meat eater, long necks. What are we talking about? Well, Shamley, this is quite a small dinosaur as things go. About six feet long, about two feet tall and estimated to be over 70 million years old and its name is apologies if i get this wrong stegorus elengassen and it is an ankylosaur yes wait ankylosaurs are sort of got lots of sort of hard armory bits all over their body and then a big club on their tail for maybe for whacking predators with well surely that's the one that i think of as well this one is kind of different and it's maybe opening up some questions and helping scientists understand more about the evolution of armored dinosaurs so what's weird about it then well i think number one then is that it doesn't look like a lot of other ankylosaurs so its pelvis is actually sort of reminiscent of stegosaurs but its teeth are reminiscent of ankylosaurs. And those are kind of related dinosaurs. So it's a bit of a bit of a mishmash there. But you mentioned the kind of club tail, which I think is maybe what we think of when we think of ankylosaurs. But in this case, this new species has got a different structure on the end of its tail, which you know maybe was a weapon or what have you. And it's one that's never been seen before. And look out for a link to the story in the show notes so you can actually see what this looks like. But um, let me try and describe it to you. It's kind of seven flattened kind of bony deposits that come out of each side of the tail and some of them are fused together and they make this kind of shape I guess reminiscent of a palm frond and one of the quotes in this article is amazing that uh, apparently a blow from this tail would be like being whacked in the shins by a battle axe apparently so uh, it's certainly unusual to science this structure. Ouch yeah I was I'm looking at the photos in the article it is really weird because yeah the plates just sort of stick out sideways like a yeah like a double-sided axe and you can imagine that could be quite a good weapon uh, as an alternative to a club like i imagine they think it it, this is still a sort of defensive structure 
Well, yeah, in the title of the paper, they call it bizarre tail weaponry. So I think that's maybe the thought. But exactly, you know, whether it's used for defence or whether it's used for showing off to other members of the species, that's one of those things that, we, you know, it's going to be really, really hard to ever answer, Shamini. But, but what this work does do, I think it sheds some new light on the evolution of these kind of armoured dinosaurs. Now, there are a range of types of ankylosaurs. But while ankylosaurs from the northern landmass of what was once the supercontinent Pangaea are, you know, pretty well studied, those from the southern landmass, which contain what is now... Now, Chile, and it was the southern tip of Chile where this dinosaur was found. Now, these are a lot rarer and less well understood. And the researchers suggest that this new species has, you know, a couple of cousins maybe from the southern landmass, but they were much less well preserved than this current find. And so they're using this to try and, you know, piece together the armoured dinosaur family tree. Oh, so they're trying to figure out how how this one is related to all the other ones and how all the dinosaurs are related to each other. I just kind of love that, like, because fossils are relatively rare, we're still just discovering entirely, like, new dinosaurs. It's very exciting. Yeah, and and what I didn't know as well is that the sort of tail defences didn't arise in evolution very often. I think there's an ancient armadillo that's got a weaponized tail, but they did arise a few times in the ankylosaurs. So they're they're a pretty neat group of dinosaurs, no doubt. And I'm sure this is going to give more of a drive to look in these kind of southern areas for more of these dinosaurs to try and again piece together, you know, their family tree. Well, that's brilliant. Thank you, Ben. I always love it when you bring dinosaurs to the briefing chat. Listeners, if you want any more on the stories that we've discussed, we'll be putting the links in the show notes. And while you're there, you'll also see a link for where you can sign up to the nature briefing and if you do that you can get stories like these ones emailed directly to your inbox and that's all for this week's podcast but as always but as always you can keep in touch with us on twitter we're at nature podcast or you can email us podcast at nature.com i'm benjamin thompson and i'm shamni bandel thanks for listening the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY exclusions apply see site for details here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs coming off their parents plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer flexible budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.